Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Novelist Leo Benedictus joins us to talk about his latest book, Consent. Leo Benedictus is a freelance feature writer for The Guardian and other publications. His first novel, The After Party, was published in 2011 by Jonathan Cape. And Leo's latest novel is Consent, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Leo, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello. How would you describe Consent, Leo? If I had to do it quickly, (laughs) which at this stage I imagine I do, uh, it's a novel about a stalker, but also by a stalker. Uh, So essentially it's an unnamed man who says he's neither young nor old, we know very little about, who discovers, after he, he comes into a lot of money, he discovers a taste for studying women, he would say. And then one woman in particular called Francis uh, catches his interest. And the story really is the story of him and her as he gets closer and closer into her life and her life falls apart for reasons she doesn't understand. And normally at this point I would say let's talk about some of the characters in the book. Or I guess we'll get to Francis in a little while. But our narrator does present us with a problem in terms of talking about him. So you just described him. He also describes himself in the book as a writer and indeed is possibly writing this very book that we're talking about as he goes along. Now, in the after party, you also had a version of a writer, a version of yourself with your name in that book as well. Now, the narrator of this story goes a little bit further. So tell us about this idea of like inserting a a sort of surrogate for the writer into the, into the story. I would, if you'll forgive me, I would say... It's, I don't see it as inserting. I think everyone who doesn't do it is subtracting. Of course I'm there in every book I write, so is every novelist in every novel. And I think probably what maybe the reason I've, I've done this, at least in these two books, um, is because I'm very literal-minded, and I think I always have been, and I've, I've spent a long time trying to kind of expunge that from myself and before I eventually realised while writing The After Party that it was true and it's how I feel. When I read first-person novels, going right back to when I was a kid, I would quite often find myself thinking, who is speaking this and who is writing it down and how has it come to be in my hands, printed and edited? I mean, these are sort of 
essentially kind of dumb questions because I know the answer, which is that there isn't an answer and it's just a, an invented story. But it would bother me that there was that gap that the, the novelist didn't feel a need to fill. Worth pointing out that in for the first hundred years or so of its existence, novels always filled that gap. They, they would be fake diaries or fake letters. Or there would be a reason for this book to exist as a written thing and it would come into your hands through whatever means. And quite a lot of the readers of Clarissa, for example, in the 18th century thought it was a, a real selection of letters. It's only, I think, in the 19th century that that the novel or novel readers rather develop the ability to just skip that question and just go with it and I, I suppose maybe I've never developed that ability I, I always find myself thinking about that extra layer that exists uh, between the reader and the, and the book and of course with the narrator of this book as I said it's you've taken that to a a sort of both an ethical and a you know a, a sort of action extreme haven't you I have I mean this is this is the main thing to say as well about that extra layer I think most novels are profoundly dishonest um, and I'm, I don't mean that in a way that I suppose implies as much judgment as it as it sounds I, I, I don't think that the novelists are doing immoral things but I think for the most part maybe in every case the novelist is someone trying to talk to people trying to communicate how they feel about the world into the minds of other people through this the most intimate form we have that, that there's no better way of getting the thoughts of one mind into another mind than, than through a novel and doing that but pretending to be doing something else has become the conventional normal way of going about things for literary writers especially so you know I think when you sit down to write a novel you you can imagine I think my impression is most novelists might imagine that why they're doing it is something about the world. They might want readers to to understand some idea that they want to explain. They might they might simply want to tell a story about characters who feel exciting to them, or, or they might be on a moral mission. They might, might want to give a voice to the voiceless, or or whatever else it might be. But I always come back to the question: But why a novel? Why are you writing a novel to do these things? I think if you really if you really cared about making the world a better place or expanding expanding people's idea of other other people. I don't think writing a novel is a very good way of doing it because it's not the truth of someone else's minds. It's something you've invented. And what I think is really happening, of course, is the reason that the answer is always write another novel is because there's something about novel writing which appeals to people. And we see that, you know, thousands and thousands of novels are written every year and they speak of a desperation to be understood. And I feel that. I think Probably most people do. Certainly a lot do. The internet seems to be the best possible proof of the widespread existence of that desperation. And I try to write novels that are about that feeling. That seems to me what novels are. And I, I try to stay in touch with it. OK, that's in terms of the, you know, the, the writer of the novel and the writer in the novel. Let's talk about the sort of the audience for this novel as well, because obviously the reader is having some sort of like contract with this story as well, not just because... It's like when people write these, you know, like a real life. Uh, I was going to say Glenn Frey, but that other guy. It was that other guy. Uh, um, you mean the third million pieces? Guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, like that guy. There is this, like, when you have these, you know, a sort of contract with a reader that a novel is fiction and a true life story, supposedly that's sold as such, is real. And I've always sort of thought that the, you know, the line between those two things are blurred as well, because obviously. Anything, even if you are writing about, you know, being terribly abused as a child, as all mm. of those books used to be in the nineties or whatever, you know, at a distance, your memories are obviously, you know, it's still, it's basically fiction, mm. whatever way you look at it. So there's this, there's also this compact with with the reader. So when you're presenting the story like this, what are you expecting the reader to bring to it? I guess is the is the long winded way I'm trying to get to. Um, I mean, are you asking whether you think 
this is unfair to the reader, or at least that I'm not I'm not making my side of the I'm not I'm not sort of fulfilling my half of the deal. No, I'm not suggesting you are, but I'm suggesting that you are exploring ideas around the possibility of it being so. Yes, I mean I I am doing that. I'm, I think I'm doing more than exploring. I, I I mean I'm I'm absolutely saying this is the truth of what I feel is going on right now. I mean, I'm I'm aware that when I describe a need that that I have and and I'm sure many people have to be understood by other people to get a lot of people's attention to make them think about the things I want them to, that the the next question is why are they going to care? Like, why why is anyone going to want to read me doing that? I don't think they would want to very much. Uh, I don't like the sound of doing that with other people, and novels really are a vehicle for for gripping people's attention, gripping their whole minds sometimes when they're really absorbed in them. It's how I feel when I'm reading novels that grip me. And I feel that that contract has already, always existed. Sure, the reader knows that they'll start reading a book, which they hope, they don't know until they've started reading it, which they hope they will enjoy and find impossible to put down in the usual phrase. But while that's going on, they are in the hands of the novelist and they to some extent don't mind because I think they expect to have a good time they expect to find it interesting entertaining mind expanding whatever it might be they expect to get pleasure from it I expect that as a reader um, and I want to deliver that as a writer but I still think the authors aren't really being open about what the deal here is yes you give people pleasure hopefully by writing books they'll enjoy and by writing gripping books quite a lot of the time that means but you don't really declare what you're getting in return which is a day two days inside someone's head and they can't it's why the book's called consent at least in this country it's called read me in america but you know you they can't consent to that in advance you can't say in advance i give you permission to take over my mind and fill it with whatever thoughts you find interesting without knowing what those thoughts are going to be and what the effect on your mind is going to be you see that the moment you start reading a novel you're saying i'm i'm going to let you do what you want without knowing what that's going to be in advance and in that way i think novels are are just really problematic things. I, I'm, I'm serious about this. I know that maybe this sounds like a metaphor, uh, that actually, if you think about it, a novel is a way for a novelist to manipulate uh, and occupy semi-forcefully people's minds. I think it literally is. Um, I don't think, actually, that there's any other way of doing that. I don't think that the creepiest techniques of governments or software companies come close to novels in terms of how deeply they get into people's minds. When you're reading a book that's completely gripped to you, I intended this book to be a book that would be very, very gripping. Mm-hmm. Um, you forget the world's there. You know, I do when I'm reading a book that I really love. I, I'm staring at words on a page, and yet for for spells of time, I feel like I'm not. I actually don't know that fact. I stop being myself. I start being a construction from the novelist mm-hmm. using the words on the page. And that's nothing else does that. Nothing. And staying with your the sort of compact of the writer with the reader as well i mean this is a book that's i mean it's a crime novel we can say that straight up front you've already mentioned this about the stalker and there are you know there are some murders in it and it gets extremely graphic at certain points and i wonder to what extent you're also exploring this whole idea like the sort of uh, you know michael haneke funny games thing which is like you know you're exploring what's going on this in this murder, but at the same time is saying to the reader, you know, this is what you want. Look at this. This, yeah. this is what you're asking for. I think I am, clearly, to some extent. And, and But every reader should know that already. When a reader buys a book that they've heard, if, if you are listening to this, listener, and you hear it described that this is a very violent book with very graphic scenes in it, are you reacting instinctively by thinking, great, I love the idea of that. I want to read those. I mean, I'm one of the people who probably does react that way. I know some people feel the opposite. But, you know, that's that's pretty common. And the reason I wrote the scenes was not, I think, to press those buttons in people's minds, but partly because of my own fascination in doing it. 
I enjoy spectacles of violence in films and in books. I don't enjoy violence in life um, or approve of it. But it's true. It is honest to say that I enjoy it, um, along with a lot of people. And I was curious in this book, there's no violence in the first one, to write a, re- you know, a couple, really, but one especially very, very, very violent scene and see what it'd be like to go there, to imagine it as, as deeply as you have to when you're writing it. And, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was... It was disturbing and distressing for me to write, actually, as well. So I hope it might be to read, and, and so are many plays and films and other other things. And, and yet, we kind of can't help ourselves. We are fascinated with this stuff. I want to talk about the idea of the writer themselves as... Like, the stalking as a metaphor for writing a novel in itself, because your narrator here, in exploring the lives and often the inner lives of these characters, the women that he follows is what all novelists do with their own characters, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. This is really, and it's why I'm not really making a lot of choices in this book about the effects I want to have on the reader. The book is, is more a confession than anything else. It's a confession of how I feel when I'm writing novels. It's the fact that I want to write novels, and yet, because I try to be honest with myself about why I want it, I feel a bit guilty about it too, because I'm aware that I'm not doing it for the reader. I'm doing it for myself, and I'm and to some extent aware that I want to make seductive, consuming novels that will kind of force the reader's attention onto the things that interest me. And I don't feel, you know, I don't, I, that doesn't sound like very nice, a very nice thing to do. So the book, to some extent, is a description of that. And you're right, I think it's something I observed, particularly after finishing my first book, but I suppose I felt for years, that I notice things. I look at people and, and study them and remember details. And I feel in life quite a lot of the time that I'm making notes about things I might one day write about. And, yeah, it's very like the kind of stalking that he describes. Absolutely. This is very much like the, you know, the whole um, shard of ice in the heart, the sort of Graham Greene thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, I, I hope so, yeah. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Leo Benedictus about his novel Consent. And Leo, you mentioned in the first half, preempting this next question, that the book, while it's called Consent here, is called Read Me in the US. And I wanted to talk about how a book being published at this point called Consent couldn't really be better uh better time well a better or worse time depending on your point of view yeah um I, that that was a big part of the conversation yeah about why we changed the title for america and i think i was you know i i hate titles i find it profoundly difficult when i'm getting towards the end of a book i sometimes go running not with a lot of enthusiasm but because it's good for me and when i'm doing it towards the end of a book i find all i can think about is alternative titles for the book i'm writing and i go round and round in my head and uh, i'll think of something and i'll think it's brilliant for a for 20 minutes and then I'll hate it and it'll go on a list and by the end of a book I've got a list of I don't know short story length just a list of possible titles and none of them look good and and the very idea, and the fact of having to put a title on a thing always feels it doesn't come naturally so I was quite relaxed really about giving it a different title in America and I mean I think for reasons that hopefully become clear once you finish reading the book the title is important but the fact that it's consent or read me is is not important I don't think but at the same time, the book is about subject matters, you know, sort of the ingrained misogyny of society. This stalker is doing, and he says himself, and also the reaction that some of the women that he's stalking before he gets to Francis that actually sort of catch him, is that he's doing a more extreme version of the sort of shit that women have to put up with every day anyway. He is. I mean, to some extent, I think I only found that out after finishing the book. The, the overwhelming majority of the people that I've worked with in, in publishing have, have been women on this book. And a considerable number have said that they recognise a lot of a lot of things in this book and the experience of feeling followed anyway on the street, which, which is new to me, or at least the extent of it is new to me. I, I didn't realise that it was such a common experience for women. I mean, I think he's a... I tried to make him an interestingly problematic case because I think he sees himself as... As a feminist, if anything, I think he considers himself to be on women's side. He certainly takes the side of women who are being mistreated by other men. I think he he enjoys the idea of being in that role and is blind, it seems, to the obviously, I don't know whether I'd call it misogynistic, but it's certainly manipulative and unpleasant um, behaviour. It's very paternalistic, let's say. Well, I'm not even sure that it is. He's he's incredibly inter- he, he's obsessed with women. Clearly, he follows women pretty much exclusively throughout his time as a as a stalker. Although he wouldn't use that word. And why he's interested in them is something he talks about, but doesn't seem to properly understand himself. I don't think he thinks of them as less important or less intelligent or less anything particularly different from men in that way. But they seem to press his buttons a great deal, as as women do for men, I suppose. And it's a good point for us to start talking about Frances then. Tell us who she is. Well, she is really, she's half half the book. Half the book is, is first person, well, the stalker writes his story. Um, and the other half is third person as she lives her life. And she is being followed by him without her knowledge. I think in many ways, just as he is a kind of a void, where I think we're, we're familiar with his mind, but we don't know really what he looks like, what, what he doesn't have a name. We, we really have very little concrete to get our, our grip on with him. She is a much sort of clearer character. Um, she works as a management consultant in some ways. I, I like the idea of choosing an apparently unprepossessing job, or at least a, a not kind of traditionally dramatic type of job to write about for her. And she's successful. She's attractive. She's popular. In, she has all the outward appearance of a happy life. But there's something about her and some some circumstances surrounding how he meets her or sees her in the first place that intrigues him more than usual. 
Um, and I think during the course of the book, it does become clear that she is lonely in in many ways. There are reasons why she she struggles to connect to other people, actually quite as he struggles to connect to other people. He, I think, imagines that she and he are perfectly suited to each other, have so much in common that they're meant to understand each other. I mean, he's, I think, clearly deluded if he thinks that his kind of behaviour would ever be acceptable to her. But at the same time, there's the germ of something there that he's lonely and disconnected and she's lonely and disconnected. But Clearly, he's more severely damaged than she is. And indeed, you you sort of play with that. And of course, we have to state that, you know, he's narrating a lot of this and is the very definition of an unreliable narrator. But at the same time, you sort of play with that idea that there is this sort of like almost symbiotic relationship between the two of them and there could be something there. Yeah, I mean, I... I have to, this is one of those books where I have to be careful what I say because of the, the potential for spoilers exactly and so there are some answers there's some points I might make which which I can't but yeah I think this is the relationship between readers and writers for me readers of this book who find themselves appalled uh, in places might feel that I've exploited or manipulated them they also chose to read the book consent and the extent to which you you choose to be manipulated is a complicated thing i think in a novel um and i, I mean I, I include myself as a reader as much as a writer here you know i'm, I'm i read more books than i write so um the she's usually on the other foot but i think she doesn't want um what he's doing clearly but he's writing the story and he would love to imagine that she did well, I wanted to talk about, you've already mentioned it, the change in the person that happens when Francis comes into the book. So as you said, the, the first part of the book is narrated by a narrator and also is, as far as we're concerned, being written by the narrator. And then there is this change into the third person when we get to Francis's sections, which often mean, and I really enjoyed the way that often then when it was switched back to the narrator, we would see the same scene again, but mm. in his sort of description or often the other way around. Um, tell me about that change. The, why have the change in person? It seems to be a thing I'm I'm into, actually, because it's, it's, it's the same thing in the after party. And they're very different books and many years between them. But yeah, the, the same thing. I seem to quite like rewriting the same scene from different points of view. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult line to, to tread, really, where I want readers to think about the writing process. I want them to think about this as a book being constructed in front of their eyes. But I'll be I'll be perfectly frank. I think that a lot of books that bring that to the front to openly the traditional postmodernist stuff, the Ulipo stuff, some of the modernist stuff, it's it's boring. It loses the ability to absorb you in the story. It, you, you can't help but admire its inventiveness and cleverness and the doggedness of the writers who finish the thing. But for me, it's dead on arrival. I don't really feel that those stories come alive in my mind when I read them. So I'm trying to have my cake and eat it by using technique and visible technique to make readers make them, but at least keep in the back of their minds the fact that they're reading someone writing a story while absorbing them in the story at the same time. There's another point in the book where the perspective changes, and this is at the the murder. We can mention, you know, we've already mentioned there's a murder. So there's a murder of a character, and at that point, the narrator changes tense to the extent that to begin with. I wasn't even sure if it was actually really happening. 
Mm. The whole question of whether things are actually really happening is, is it actually, it really is the kind of the very core of, of what I was saying a moment ago, that you, you do sometimes see books and films which absorb you in a story and then call you an idiot for believing it. You know, say, oh, I made all this up. Ha ha, isn't it obvious? And you think, well, that, that's, that's really unfair. You know, we all, of course, we get absorbed in stories and, and yet we know they're fiction. So I don't think there's anything sort of clever or interesting in, in, sudden, in pulling the rug from readers in that way. But I do think that trying to do both at the same time, if I possibly can, is, is ideal. I want to try and keep that alive, really. Try and keep alive in the reader's mind the fact that this is a piece of writing. It's a piece of writing by a fictional character. So hopefully it can continue, that, that the fictional universe stays intact. And maybe after they finish the book, they can think, well, it's also a piece of writing by me, you know. But at least while they're reading the book, hopefully the fictional universe continues to be alive in their mind. And and when tense changes, when the person changes, some, some of it's first person, some of it's second person, some of it's third person, some of it's, I think some of it's conditional, some of it's future, some of it's past, some of it's present. Um, that's not done willy-nilly. To me, he uses those kinds of techniques to avoid things sometimes he, he will write in the second person sometimes when I think we all do this actually um the second person has a very technical but you know I think the second person has a lot of widespread use in in ordinary English and we sort of don't notice it happening it's used generally in in a kind of instruction manual context where you're telling people what they should do but you're imagining yourself in their shoes while they do it so if you give someone instructions to the bus stop you might say you go to the end of the road, then you turn right, then it's on your left after 100 yards. You say something like that in, I'm doing it now, you say it in the second person. And he uses the second person in a in a similar way because he's imagining being someone else, partly because he doesn't want to admit that it was him doing it. I mean, yeah, it, it has a distancing effect. Yeah, but he's. A, I find the second person really interesting. I, I think it's almost always the wrong thing to do. <laughs> but it has this lovely kind of personless quality. It, you know, the most famous example is Bright Lights, Big City, I suppose. And what's interesting about that, you read that book, you, you don't at all think you are the one who's high on coke all the time and getting into trouble at work. You read that book, but with this sort of gas or where the, where the narrator ought to be, it, it just leaves the the voice, the actual kind of location of the voice absent, which is wonderfully effective, but I don't think you can sustain it for very long. I'm reminded of um, Andrew Hankinson's novel about um, Raoul Mo. I don't know if you are I have, you yeah. Across that, and that's written entirely in the second person, and it's because that in itself is even more extreme than you know what's going on in Bright Light, mm. Big City. You know, it's like it's almost like Raoul Mo choose your own adventure. Yeah, is what it feels like is your that's exactly you're, that's that's the context we quite often find it in those kind of choose your own adventure books, which I, I used to love as a kid. <laughs> so I just wanted to talk about that, and again, without giving too much away. The, the dismemberment scene, which we're talking about here in terms of being in the second person, is incredibly detailed. And also the discussion of the surveillance equipment and the stalking techniques and things like that. And I want to talk about how you research some of that stuff. Um, I did almost no research. I've, you know, which wrote... is even more worrying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't stuff I happened to casually know either. I've, I've been, uh, you know, my day job has been journalism for many years. So I've, I've had to do research for money for, for a long time. And I think in many ways, if I was ever a researcher before, I'm, 
I'm not now. When I write novels, I like to just make it all up, not bother about being true. That said, Google will help you out on almost everything. So here and there, you know, the amount of blood in a human body, that kind of thing. I've, I've, you can check that in a second. That's, that's nothing. But I think it should be reasonably accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, I should stress here that this is a big part of the pleasure of writing fiction for me. And, and I'm sure anyone would find this, that when you, you set yourself a task to imagine what it might be like to do something maybe as, maybe as incredibly gruesome as chopping up a human body, then I can say that now. But if you really sit down and spend some time over it and think, OK, to think practically, I'm in a room, I've got a corpse, I need to get rid of it. What are the, what's the first thing I need to do? Like, just plan it. Just think about what you're going to need to take account of. What are the things that are going to happen? What's going to be difficult? It's one of the things that's really important in this book, I feel, for me, is he's not a kind of glassily perfect villain. He makes mistakes all the time. He's, he's as capable of clumsiness or forgetfulness as as you or I and he's practical you know when I've when I've spoken to sort of some, some quite good engineers down the years and it, it always strikes me how they seem to me incredibly capable competent people who can just do anything mm-hmm. but actually the way they do anything is by admitting in advance the likelihood of human error it's accepting that you're you're likely to get everything wrong that means you can build clever systems and machines that will take account of that and so he's like that really I think he's he's methodical and thorough but he makes mistakes like everybody else and if you sit down to write a scene where someone chops up a body you'll become methodical and thorough too and you and stuff will occur to you you'll think oh yeah I bet it's like that I bet it's like that you, you think things like you know if you if you stab someone to death they're going to be really warm your hands inside their body it's going to be really warm you're going to feel that something I've never thought about before in my life until I write something like that happening and then when you do think about it you think god yeah i feel like i know a little bit of what it would be like just one more thing then then i'll get you to read a bit a few words and i wanted we've mentioned a few other books and other writers as we've been going along i wanted to talk to you about i guess not just what other things might have influenced you in in your writing but stuff that you like i guess and obviously not you know george perec well i don't i mean i don't want to i don't want to get a give George Perec a kicking. I, I I think that um, just let everyone do what you feel like, you know. And if he was doing what he was, what he felt like, fantastic. That's that's the best thing anyone can do. But let's all be honest and open about how we respond to what we read as well. And if you read something which is highly admired and was clearly difficult to do and it's never been done by anyone else before, doesn't mean you had a good time. Doesn't mean you weren't bored. You know, it doesn't mean it. You're not struggling to find reasons to admire it rather than actually being moved, you know, which which is really what I think a book or any work of art needs to be about. So that's why Perec wouldn't be on the list for me. I mean, I would have said years ago, I would have said Calvino is one of my one of my heroes. And clearly I've, I've learned from Calvino. But at the same time, after a while, it's just partly about getting older and getting more confident. I started to think, you know, I am not enjoying this. I am not moved by this. I am fascinated, but I am not. This doesn't feel like reading a novel. Why should this be? fiction anyway you want me to mention some books that have influenced me very influenced by in this book by Gilead a Marilyn Robinson novel what I loved about it was it's a you know like all her work a book with with Christianity buried deeply in it and I'm not a Christian I'm I'm an atheist absolutely and yet I loved how much reading Gilead from the point of view of this uh, elderly pastor in in the 1950s I think I see things from his point of view. Uh, I, I love the the honest engagement with with the questions that really matter that you get in serious you find with serious Christians, even though I you know, totally disagree with them. And the way that book is both a novel, but a novel about its own writing, and a novel that smuggles in little essays which are 
apparently of interest to John Ames, isn't it? I think his name, the, uh, the writer and pastor in uh, Gilead, but presumably also of interest to Marilyn Robinson. You know, <laughs> that was that in many ways, that was a model. I mean, actually, sort of structurally and formally, this book is very different from Gilead, but it, it has a lot of similarities too. It's a it's a guy writing a book for somebody about his life speckled with little essays and opinions of his own. So that was a big influence. I owe a lot, I think, in a kind of foundational sense to The Secret History. Donatar isn't my favourite writer by, by any means, but The Secret History had an effect on me, which many better books don't, actually. It was so consuming to read, so gripping, and I found myself reading I think this is what made it a transformative moment. I was reading it a while after it came out, probably I was in my 20s, and I loved it, and I was spending half the time reading it and the other half thinking, how does she do it? How does she do it? How does she consume me so completely in this book? And I think I learned a few things from her that I hope I've put into practice here. I, I mean, really, one of the main influences I should mention isn't fiction at all. It's, it, it would be philosophy, particularly Montaigne and, and Daniel Dennett, who my narrator is sort of trying to be Montaigne in some ways. And, or maybe I am, I don't know. But it's kind of accepting loneliness and, and writing about it with that casualness that Montaigne brings to sometimes very weighty subjects I, I enjoy. And Daniel Dennett, I think, is a, he's my favourite philosopher and a, as a model for a lot, a lot of ways of secular thinking, some of which my narrator shares. I will uh, hand over to you just to explain to us what you're going to read. This is from the second chapter of the book, and it's, it's really what, what kicks the whole thing off for the narrator. First, I should explain how I got rich. It happened quite suddenly four years ago on the day of my Aunt Cathy's funeral. Those few of us present met afterwards to exchange memories in a smart restaurant closed for the occasion. They were dull memories, but it was a Friday afternoon, so we drank freely. We needed to. The place was far too big. There was plainly a wine surplus, and a long table stood against a wall stacked handsomely with sandwiches, pastries and prepared fruit. People like to say there is an unmentionable elephant in the room at such times, but we actually had space for one and could have fed it. Myself, I was very hungry and ate all I could. I took something from a different serving plate each time, hoping to leave them tousled as if by a crowd. Others nibbled too, and in the end we left what could easily have been the aftermath of thirty or forty mourners with small appetites, which you might expect given the occasion and the time of day. Besides, whoever cleared up afterwards would have to be quite paranoid to imagine someone systematically visiting different plates in order to deceive them. Cathy's lawyer made his approach while I was eating strawberries, I think. Having established who I was, he gave me his card, said he had some documents that concerned me, and suggested we meet afterwards. I admit I expected something gestural from Cathy. I also admit that I knew that a gesture from her would not be very small. She'd been single and a heavy earner, one of the first women to make a mark in banking, though the career was no crusade. She was as uninterested in the women's movement as she was in everybody else's. You only had to be with her twenty minutes to see the stern fixity of a person who expects nothing from their fellows and gives less back. She must have been an anvil to haggle with. It's mostly visual now, my memory of Cathy. It's the bright suits and glasses, and the fringe that changed colour but never shape. The cancer news she took, not happily of course, but nevertheless in a spirit that was close to vindication. Death in your fifties being a pyrrhic victory over the optimists, you might say. Any talk of battling during a visit and you'd be dismissed. I'd just like to ask how it felt, knowing she would die soon. And I think she liked my bluntness. On good days she said she was glad not having to worry about the grief of others. On bad ones she said almost nothing. 
I don't want you to think that Cathy didn't laugh, however. That last stage saw a flourishing of bitter humour. A couple of times a joke seemed on the point of finishing her off. The best way to go, I suppose, if you can manage it. In particular, she developed a running theme about her legacy, as though she were an outgoing chief executive or politician, which made me laugh as well. I thought it indicated that she knew she'd been a pioneer. Later, I wondered whether the joke had another layer she'd been keeping to herself, because Cathy left a legacy indeed. Having been solemn before, the lawyer gave me a lot of grins in the taxi. We made no small talk. At his office he ordered coffee, and while I drank mine, explained that, after a donation to the hospice and a few sideways odds and ends, it was my aunt's wish that all her wealth should go to me. Once you combine the various accounts and funds with a conservative valuation of her flat, this amounted to just less than eleven million, a sum that has only grown in the years since. I find even the interest difficult to spend. At the time, my main feeling was confusion over how to react. So I'm rich, I said, or something like it. The lawyer agreed. How do people normally react? This question seemed to surprise the lawyer. He said it was hard to generalise because cases this dramatic were rare. Indeed, when you considered the amount of money involved and the unexpectedness, this was the most dramatic he had handled in more than 30 years. He did not know what you'd call normal. But you were smiling, I said, and it seemed you were looking forward to telling me, so you must have expected something good. Did you expect me to be pleased? He said most people were pleased. What do they do? They didn't celebrate, at least not in his office. But he could see they were excited. Some had problems that would be solved by the bequest, and they often cried. Some cried at feeling so beloved by the deceased. A few times he'd had to convince people he was really a lawyer. It varied. That night, I gave my aunt's memory a maudlin evening with a bottle of whisky. Saturday, I went a little crazy on the town. Restored and ready for work on Monday, I stopped at my breakfast bowl. We'll say that the spoon was halfway to my lips, although, of course, I can't remember. The radio was definitely on, some squabble about trains. It had been my plan to bide time and let the circumstances sit with me before making any big decisions. Yet there was something absurd now about having breakfast, just as I always did, my glum life unchanged even by this shock. I had a job that I neither loved nor hated. Why would I give my day to that? It's hard to explain, but it was like I'd stepped off stage to join an audience watching my own acting. Eats breakfast with the radio on. Does nothing hasty. All weekend I'd believed myself set free by Cathy's money, but that was quite wrong. I'd been free all my life, and refusing to know it. If you don't look closely, biding time and killing it look about the same. I've been talking to Leo Benedictus. We've been talking about his novel Consent, which is out now from Faber. Leo, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.